Hello, friends. It's Michael Bauman from The Ringer MLB Show. On today's episode, we step back and take stock of the League Championship Series. What's wrong with Jose Altuve? Are the Dodgers still in it? Why is Dave Roberts allowing lefties to pitch to Ozzy Albies? We answer at least one of those questions. And then we examine Billy Bean's rumored departure from the Oakland A's for the world of business and pay tribute to Joe Morgan and Whitey Ford. All that and more coming right up. Do you know what's on your ballot? Head to BallotReady.org to get the info. Did you know you can vote before November 3rd in most states? Check if you can mail in your ballot or vote early in person at BallotReady.org. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. It is not the time or the place, Michael. Oh, man, I was about to make that joke with <laughs> our other co-host, a man whose pants were trending on Twitter, Ben Lindbergh. How you doing? I'm doing well. You can't make that joke. Your name is Michael. You have to be the recipient. I saw Bobby... Uh, quote tweet that video the night of and i was like this is going to become a drop (laughs) this is like another time or place michael it's it's a tough time to be a baseball writer named michael who uh (laughs) says things it's frequently neither the the time nor the place for um those were very tight pants however extremely tight uh and here's the confusing thing Uh, where does walker bueller even find pants that tight he's not a big guy this is like i said the night of this is the inverse of the AJ puck where AJ puck is 14 feet tall and weighs 400 pounds and still managed to manages to find like a circus tent to, to wear like Walker Bueller is one of the smallest players on the Dodgers. I don't know whose pants he was wearing. Yeah. There had to be an even smaller player that he took them from because they were not only extremely tight, they were also too short, which maybe was part of the tightness. And they've gotten progressively tighter and shorter as the postseason has gone on, where it's not really just a, a stylistic choice. It looks like it might be a performance issue at this point, just in terms of flexibility. It seems hard <laughs> to move the way you want in those pants. I mean, I I can't do like the pitcher leg kick anyway. I can't imagine doing it in skinny jeans. So anyway, Walker Bueller, if the Dodgers make it to a game five or game six and you start again, do not wear Terrence Gore's pants this time. Another thing that's gotten tighter and shorter is the rope that the Houston Astros are on. Since the last time we talked, they have uh, they've dug a hole. They're down three nothing in the ALCS uh, and the wheels. Are, are coming off. Lots of things that we thought we could take for granted about this team uh, are not coming through. I think the the first first and, and most obvious about them is, is Jose Altuve uh, has forgotten how to throw a baseball. I, I know Dusty Baker has said that Altuve is going to start at second base tonight. I would consider putting him at designated hitter. And of course, there are morale issues, potentially. You don't want to upset you know your best or second best player by removing him from second base and i understand that you know this astros lineup isn't the garvey russell lopes say dodgers infield but guriel bregman correa altuve have been together throughout this entire astros run and you really just pencil them into those four spots in the infield those four spots in the lineup ever since the astros have become this juggernaut and to see altuve 
have three errors in the course of a couple games and all of them really basic throws is I think the concerning part when a player gets the yips the bang bang plays aren't actually affected because they don't have time to think about it and and we don't know if this is what Altuve is going through but it's hard not to look at these plays and and think there ha- there's some sort of mental component after he messes up the first one, and then he overcompensates for the second one, and then overcompensates in the other direction on the third one. And these errors are having an impact. In game two, Altuve made an error in the first inning. Manny Margot responded with a three-run homer that accounted for basically all of Tampa's offense in that game. In game three, Altuve makes an error, and it leads to a five-run inning for the for the Rays, which, again, accounts for all of their offense in that game. And I think Tampa's pitching is such that all of these games are low-scoring, and you can't afford to sacrifice a run or an entire rally as has happened so far. Yeah, and Baker's been around baseball a long time, obviously, and he's seen this sort of thing before. And I think the prevailing understanding is that it's mostly a mental issue, which is why you see it crop up on those routine plays when you have time to think about the throw as opposed to the bang bang ones where it's just sort of reflexive and instinctive. And so maybe Baker being a player's manager, what he's thinking here is that the best thing to do for Altuve would be to run him out there to express confidence in him and say, I trust him to be in the field right now. Whereas if you pull him off the field, then maybe it cements whatever is going on in his head. And when you do try to put him back on the field in the future, it'll be even more deeply ingrained. But you're right. There have been some really costly mistakes now, and the Astros can't afford any more costly mistakes. So you hope that it's not a a Steve Sachs, Chuck Knobloch type thing, and that he manages to get through this. You know, maybe it just takes one or two plays to kind of get him back on the horse and remind him how to throw to first base. But it's one of those things that's really uncomfortable to watch because you're always aware of the history and the players who've gone through it and the fact that no one really knows how to solve it. Yeah, I don't want to jump straight. The yips is so scary that that I almost don't want to jump straight to that as a a serious explanation for what Altuve is going through, whether that's it's just a you know a bad couple of days or it's something mental or it's an injury. I I kind of think Dusty Baker's making the right call here because this they've got to win the next four games or they go home and this is not the time to be like to to a certain extent, I think there is that not only is there that risk of of um cementing if it is a mental issue, cementing that in Altuve's head and and maybe undermining his confidence and the confidence of the team. Down 3-0 is not the time to get experimental. Well, or I guess you could make the argument that it's precisely the time to get experimental because you got nothing to lose. But the other thing is with a, a right-handed starter on the mound, I don't really think that there's a way to solve this without hobbling the offense. I think if Aledmus Diaz was going to be the DH no matter what, you just slot him in at second base, that's easy enough. But now everybody, they've got the players to move people around. Guriel was a third baseman coming up. Bregman was a shortstop. You could move Guriel to third. You could move Bregman to second. But at that point, with no Jordan Alvarez and none of the none of their regular outfielders uh, having had regular reps at, at first base, um, there's no way to to shuffle everybody around without possibly creating other defensive problems elsewhere. So I think at this point, just it's it's probably best to to leave well enough alone, even if it gets even if it gets ugly again. And the thing about this series is that simultaneously the Astros are 
down three to zero, and there has only been one three zero comeback in MLB history, which underscores the difficulty of a comeback for Houston. But at the same time, they've been really close in this series by many measures. They've actually outplayed the Rays. Uh, the Rays in this series have a 606 cumulative team OPS. The Astros are at 721. The Astros have more hits. They have more home runs. They have almost half as many strikeouts at the plate. So they have hit much better. And that's even before you get into the fact that players like Alex Bregman have been scorching the ball, but it's been finding gloves as the Rays have made a billion diving catches so far. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's not that the Astros being out hit has been their problem thus far. They just haven't gotten the hits at the right time and the Rays have. And the Rays really, I mean, aside from, of course, Randy Arosarena, no one has really been hitting for the Rays. I guess Mike Zunino as well. But it's just that they've gotten timely hits and the Astros have not. And I think that's partly bad luck. It's partly, as Zach said, that they've hit some balls hard right at guys. And then, of course, it's also the fact that the Rays are a, a great defensive team and they've made some really spectacular plays at important moments. And as everyone has noted, their relievers have yet to allow an inherited runner to score. So when that happens, you just get the Astros producing all these hits, putting all these people on base, but then not converting them into runs. They're not clustering their hits. And if you could play these three games a, a million times somehow, I don't think that the Rays would typically go 3-0. and I think some things have broken in their direction. And they've also happened to play really well and come up big at big times. So if I were in the Astros clubhouse, the message I would be sending is, hey, you are playing your game. It's working in some ways. We just haven't broken through. Like If you keep doing what you're doing long enough, you will eventually win with this approach. It's just that they're down 3 nothing, And so they have to beat a, a really good team now four times in a row to advance. And that is, history tells us, almost impossible to do. I don't think that the conversation about whether the Astros are getting unlucky or the, or the Rays are just playing great defense is that useful in terms of prognosticating how, uh, how the series is going to go, partially because I think the answer is both. Uh, but partially because it doesn't really matter at this point. It's not like the the Astros can do anything to get her, this. Like this isn't football where you can go to play action or something like that to to move the or to move the Rays' defense around. They've just got to keep doing what they've been doing, which is sending Alex Bregman up there five times a game to you know line a ball into what should be the gap and end up having it get caught. I mean, there's there's really no other way for them to approach this where they. I think can look back with a little bit of regret is not just the the defense, but stuff like the the sixth inning last night when um when the Rays scored five runs and like yeah, like Hunter Renfro's blooper uh is not gonna drop most of the time. The the Manny Margot, oh boy. I mean, I guess that's a the that was the the first successful sacrifice bunt in uh in the postseason this year. And if you want to call that successful, I guess that, that that is technically true. And that is the, the best, best kind of being right. Uh, you know, stuff like that is going to, um, it's going to happen. But what really broke that game open was an only Paredes hitting two guys in the hand on consecutive pitches on opposite sides of the plate. Like we're finally seeing that or the Astros starting pitching has been really good. Uh, in this series, but we're finally seeing like that middle of the the bullpen that didn't 
um, didn't let the Astros down against Oakland or Minnesota is finally coming back to, uh, to bite them. So, and, and that's even with Josh James pitching well last night, which has not been something that they've been able to count on. So I think it, I mean, at this point, the, the Rays just have so much pitching that they're going to almost certainly going to be able to win one out of the remaining four. I still think the Rays were the better team going into the series. They have been the better team in the series. They are the better team going forward. But, uh, you know, I think the Astros can, can, uh, uh, can claim to be a little hard done by not that anybody's really going to be sympathetic to them. So I'll, I guess we'll, we'll bring this in for a landing this way. Zach, I'm going to do a science experiment. Okay. You ready for this? Go for it. I love science. Okay. Ben, are the Astros completely out of this series? Are they cooked? Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that is a shockingly unequivocal take from the <laughs> not just Mr. Chalk, but but Mr. There's always a chance. I mean, I think the Mr. Chalk take when you're down three nothing against the team with the best record in the league is probably that you're cooked, right? I mean, I don't know if I'm going out on a limb there based on the fact that uh, teams that have gone up 3-0 in the championship series or best of seven or what, 37 out of 38. So it's a pretty tall order. It's, uh, you know, statistically, of course, there is a chance, but I'm going to say they're done. I agree. I think there is a, an avenue from coming back three to zero, particularly when you have seven games in seven days. And Ben, this is what I expected from you is for you to say they were out and then explain how they were going to get back in. So no, let, let me, let me explain. So when you're playing seven games in seven days, maybe if you don't have the pitching depth, like if you go out to a three, zero lead, like if last year's nationals had come out to a three, zero lead, and then you, Uh, on the strength of Scherzer and Strasburg and Corbin, you could say, oh, well, maybe there's an avenue to win game four against a bad starter and win game five against a bad starter. And then without any days off, you have momentum and all it takes is one or two breaks at that point. But I think the issue is that Tampa has the starting pitching advantage in basically every game, including game four, when Glasnow is pitching against Granke. I think Glasnow probably has the slight advantage there. Uh, game five, when Tampa would probably use a bullpen game, I trust their bullpen game more than I trust the Astros bullpen game or Christian Javier if he starts game five. And then you still have Snell and Morton for games six and seven. And I think that's where Tampa has had an advantage uh, in the last round against the Yankees, and they have the advantage now. And I think, frankly, they're going to have the advantage against whoever they face in the World Series is they have four legitimately good starters between. The I think the three who get most of the discussion, Snell, Glasnow, and Morton, and Ryan Yarbrough, who has been very good against both the Yankees and Astros now and has been quite good the last couple regular seasons, too, coming from his position as the bulk guy after an opener to a really quality starter. And Tampa has Tampa goes four deep in the rotation. Tampa goes, I don't know, five, six, seven deep in the bullpen. And I think that's where a comeback seems really difficult to imagine that you would have all of those pitchers implode four days in a row. I look forward to Carlos Correa quoting what I just said when the Astros win the pennant. Maybe they'll use it as motivation. Well, you know what they say? Defensiveness wins championships. <laughs> this, is a, I, this is a pro-Ryan Yarbrough podcast. I've, I've been on the Ryan Yarbrough train since, uh, uh, since he first came up. I think, Zach, you put it really well, that, that there just isn't... It's just 
so unlikely. You don't see the the weakness. Like where's where are the Rays going to let up? The the Astros are going to have an uphill climb. Not not just because they have to win four in a row against a good team, but in each of those four games. So I think not like like we we've sort of been dancing around. It's not like we're breaking new uh, new analytical ground here by saying that the team that's down three nothing is probably going to lose, but the team that's down three nothing is probably going to lose. So I think what is a more interesting question for obvious reasons is the Dodgers are down two nothing after a game that uh, I just quoted Apollo 13 last night and described it as three hours of boredom followed by seven seconds of sheer terror. Um, this did not look like a game for most of the night and then very much became a game right at the very end. Uh, I wrote today examining the question of whether this is the Dodgers offense waking up or if they're just down to nothing and, and that's nothing but a moral victory and the momentum is, is sort of a farce. And, you know, I think that as with all momentum related postseason questions, you can only really answer that after you know how the whole thing shapes out. So, you know, whether that's a blip on the radar or, or that offensive outburst, I should say is a blip on the radar or whether that's the start of the Dodgers offense waking up, uh, I guess we'll we'll see starting tonight in game three. Yeah, you often hear that this can be a, a big thing for teams psychologically, even if they lose a game, if they come back late and make it close, they sort of send a message to the other team like, hey, we're not out of this thing. And I don't know how much truth there is to that. I don't really subscribe to the idea that momentum decides postseason games. History hasn't really shown that to be the case, but I think it was certainly a warning in the sense that the Dodgers were reminding everyone that they're really good at hitting and scoring. In fact, they're every bit as good as the Braves, and they're the only team that could say that this regular season. That's sort of what I thought coming into the series was that you really had to favor the Dodgers because everything the Braves were bad at, the Dodgers were good at, and everything the Braves were good at, the Dodgers were better at. And they haven't been so far in this series. It's sort of the opposite, actually, of the other series and that the Braves have really outhit the Dodgers by almost, you know, like 250 points of OPS. And so if anything, the final scores don't really reflect how well the Braves have produced here, but it's two games and it's the Dodgers and we know that they can score and that in many ways they may actually be a, a better offense than the Braves, I think. And so what we really saw here was the the top two pitchers in Atlanta's rotation doing what they've been doing for most of the season and all of the postseason, which is shutting out the opposition, right? And so now we're getting to the point where the Braves are vulnerable. And to this point in this postseason, they've only had to use three starters. Kyle Wright, who is starting on Wednesday, he is the one who you know was seen as very shaky coming into this month. And then he had a scoreless start too. But based on his history, I don't know that he can keep that up against the Dodgers. So there's, I think, much more of a path here for the Dodgers to get back into the series, not just because they're down 2-0 instead of 3-0, but because they're a better team and they're going up against the team that I think is going to be tested over the next few days based on the weakness that we thought they had coming into the postseason. Yeah, this is a perfect counterpoint to what I just said about the Rays. Kyle Wright was fantastic against the Marlins, but that was the Marlins, not the Dodgers offense. And I think uh, they haven't announced who their game four starter will be, but this is the third podcast in a row. I'll say I don't really know who that is. If it's someone like 
Bryce Wilson, he might be the best option. And he has a career 5.91 ERA in the majors. A big question is whether Clayton Kershaw can pitch game four for the Dodgers. He was scratched from game two with back spasms, which moved Tony Gonsolin up. And now Julio Arias is pitching game three. So if Kershaw is unavailable, then all of a sudden the Dodgers have kind of the same depth problems as Atlanta. But if Kershaw is able to go, they have the clear advantage in game four. I'd say uh, game five could then potentially be two to two, uh, having a bullpen game from both teams. So it's the avenue is much clearer, I think, for a Dodgers comeback. They just have to start hitting. And the I think we can argue about some of Dave Roberts' decisions, which have left me more perplexed than almost any other managers in the playoffs thus far. But he's not the one who's failing to hit against Anderson and Freed and Atlanta's relievers. And I think like the Dodgers have a high-powered offense. These were the two highest-scoring offenses in the majors this year, but only one of them has shown up thus far. Yeah, I, I looked at the the offensive outburst in the later innings of, of uh, game two. And the one thing that made me feel better about the Dodgers is that Corey Seager was at the center of it. And he's somebody who has been a huge part of their offense in the regular season, but it's really not shown up in any of his, uh, his postseason um, postseason participations. What this reminded me of is uh, actually one of the like formative sports memories of my childhood was the, uh, the 2001 Eastern Conference Finals, when the the Sixers in Game Six got down to the Bucks huge through three quarters, and in the fourth quarter, Allen Iverson scored 26 points to make the game close. They lost, but they went on to win Game Seven pretty easily. And I started thinking about that as the Dodgers were were coming back and turning that seven nothing deficit into eight seven with the the tying run 90 feet from scoring. They forced Mark Melanson to come into the game, which could be big if. Uh, if this series does go seven or does go five, six, seven games, if he's pitched both of these first two games. And then I remembered this is not that the thing that it reminded me of it was not only 20 years ago, it was a different sport. And so like, I think that this makes if the Dodgers do come back, this makes for a very tidy narrative turning point. And you're damn right. If they win the pennant this year, I'm going to write about this as the turning point because you know, I can do math, but I'm not made of stone. Uh, but I don't know how much we can really glean from this going forward, particularly because because uh, half those runs came in the ninth inning in really exceptional circumstances, such as Ozzie Albies making a really obvious error that I would not expect him to make if he gets that same ground ball 900 more times and Josh Hamlin pitching in the, in this game at all. So I think the the Dodgers, just because of what Zach said, you could see the path against Atlanta's rotation better than Houston's path um, against Tampa Bay. And because this offense is so good, this is the first two games of the anomaly. So that brings up another question. If you're a team that's down big in a series, uh, would you rather have it come the way the Astros did it, where they're hitting the ball hard and putting guys on base and just not getting anything to show for it, or what the Dodgers did the first game in two thirds of this series, would you rather just not have guys on base at all? Or does it, I'm going to ask Zach because Ben's going to say it doesn't matter, <laughs> but like, which would make, would make you feel like there's a more of a, a, a chance for a turnaround. I think, Oh, that's a good question. I think if I were down three to zero, 
maybe I would just rather say, ah, oh, we're being outplayed because you're probably not going to come back either way and you don't want to feel like there was such a, a missed opportunity. But down two to zero, when there's still ample opportunity for a comeback, we've seen plenty of two zero comebacks in baseball before, including against Atlanta. Uh, I would, I think, prefer to have the Astros perspective because the Dodgers have been outplayed so far. There's no getting around it. And does that mean anything for games three, four, five? I'm not really sure. But I think Atlanta has definitively been the better team so far from their stars like Freddie Freeman and Ozzie Albies hitting while the Dodgers haven't to their top pitchers performing better. And I don't think it's actually been that close. Yeah, from a spectator standpoint, I think it's more frustrating to lose in the way that, you know, we've seen the Astros lose, where it feels like you're just inches away from breaking through over and over again, and you can run through the scenarios in your head where the game could have gone differently, and it didn't. But from a predictive standpoint or even a, a motivational standpoint, I think it's probably better to have kept putting players on base. Like, if you keep doing what they've been doing, eventually you will score runs. That is a, a recipe for winning games. I think what's interesting, though, is that, you know, we saw the the Braves bullpen get so shaky in the ninth and the Dodgers almost complete that comeback. But you could say that one of the big, real legitimate concerns about the Dodgers right now is what they do late in games and in the ninth inning. And Zach, you wrote about that this week because it's clear that Kenley Jensen has lost his closer job now, and it's unclear who's really replaced him at this point. When you have other players who could be in that role, Blake Trinan or, or Joe Kelly, who have looked a little shaky themselves, what do you do with that position? Because if the Dodgers do get back in this series, they're going to be in that spot where they're going to need to protect a lead late. And at this point, it's it's not really clear what they should do. You know, do they put uh, the 24 year old left handed rookie Victor Gonzalez out there because he has pitched so well? Do they try to stretch some of their swingman types and have them pitch multiple innings and pitch late in games? So that's one of the things that you look at the Dodgers and you think, oh, well, they're the impregnable Dodgers. They're down 2-0, but the way they're constructed gives you some confidence that they can get back in that series. I think between Kershaw's back issue and between the, the late inning bullpen conundrum, there are some causes for concern. Yeah, I found that the... Of the eight lowest velocity games of Kenley Jansen's career, seven have come since the start of September, which is not the direction you want to be going when your season is going to be on the line. Game one, Roberts turned to try, uh, to Blake Trinan in the, the ninth inning of a tie game. That obviously didn't work. I think Victor Gonzalez has probably been the Dodgers' best reliever this year, Ben, but he's also a rookie without much experience, and he's also a left-handed pitcher. And this might be transitioning topics a bit and I want to get back to the Dodgers bullpen but I just want to talk about Dave Roberts pitching left-handers in this series against particularly Ozzy Albies so he has used a left-handed reliever against Albies in the ninth inning in consecutive games and in both games Albies hit a home run Ozzy Albies is a switch hitter but you cannot throw left-handed pitchers against him and I don't understand what Roberts is doing in Albies career he has a 753 OPS against right-handed pitters right-handed pitchers so when Albies is batting lefty he has a 753 OPS which is good but nothing spectacular against left-handed pitchers so when Albies is hitting right-handed he has a 952 OPS which is basically Aaron Judge's career mark if Albies were uh, if Albies batting right-handed so against lefties were a player all by himself 
he would have the 12th highest slugging percentage in MLB history. 12th highest in MLB history. He slugs 575 in the regular season against lefties. And I don't understand why you would ever throw a left-handed pitcher against him in an important moment. Last night, Dave Roberts, sure, he's down by four runs in the ninth inning, but the Dodgers ended up scoring four, so this run mattered. He put in Adam Kalarik, who is basically a lefty specialist, against a lineup that had a righty and then Albies as a switch hitter and then two more righties. So I'm not even sure what Kalarik is doing uh, on the mound in that situation with no lefties coming up, and particularly Albies, who crushes lefties up second in the inning. He's so little, too. Yeah, (laughs) I think Dave Roberts is a good manager. I think, in general, criticism of managerial strategy in the playoffs is really difficult, as, Ben, you've written about both this postseason and in the past when, like, Aaron Boone was criticized for some of his pitching strategies in the ALDS. I understood them. But this Dave Roberts decision to keep using lefties against Albies and against the Braves right-handed sluggers doesn't make sense to me when you have a bullpen that goes like 10 deep and you have so many other options. Yeah, I can't really explain this one either. I mean, I assume that there is some method to what appears to be madness here and that it's not that Dave Roberts just read the wrong row on the baseball reference splits page or something. Like, <laughs> I, I've done that before. It's possible. I've done it too. <laughs> I've done it too, but I would hope that uh, he hasn't done it multiple times, at least, that someone might have pointed that out. Yeah, I mean, usually... I think, okay, there's some sort of sophisticated proprietary matchup data here that they're not just looking at versus lefty-righty splits, which is basically what we're limited to, or head-to-head tiny sample stats against a particular player, but they're looking at how this hitter matches up against pitchers who have this sort of stuff or that sort of release point, you know, using comparable pitchers to come up with some sort of projection. But in this case, the difference is so stark that I don't know how you could actually come up with a a reasonable projection that would tell Dave Roberts to do what he did. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that it's not solely his decision and that there is some sort of backing for this. But at least out here in the public with our rudimentary stats, I can't tell what it is. Yeah, I... I'll say this too. I like Dave Roberts as a manager. I think that he's a huge part of why the Dodgers are in a position to embarrass themselves in the NLCS every single year. Um, but I really think he's he's gotten circles managed around him by Brian Snicker. I've been really impressed by how Snicker has uh has managed his pitching staff so far this postseason. Like even decisions that that don't look consequential at the time, like Taking Ian Anderson out after after four innings, like he said this on the broadcast last night, those were four tough innings, and they're just and he expended a lot of energy, and so rather than than risk going too long, he's just going to quit while he's ahead. Or even I think pitching Josh Tomlin in the ninth inning last night, even though he gave up three runs, is a good decision because you're going to need every bit of your bullpen. And and if you're up by five runs in the ninth inning, you ought to be able to put in a position player and close that out. And so even though it didn't really work, the process behind that was was 100% sound. And I like that it's almost an aggressive move to bring in the last guy in your bullpen in that situation. I think that's really paying off for, for a team that has, I think, a good bullpen and very little starting depth and a lot of question marks around there. Uh, around their pitching staff. I think Snicker has managed this really well while Roberts is, you know, like you said, Ben, I think we always assume that particularly with a team like the Dodgers, they have a reason for doing what they're doing, but it's, uh, it is not clear to me. I don't see the, I mean, 
I just looked up Adam Cleric's splits and it like we talked about it. Albie's platoon splits. It's like 500 points or not Cleric split. It's like four or 500 points of OPS. Albie's is 200. And there's just no reason to have that pitcher pitch to, to that hitter, even if it was a blowout at the time. And Roberts doesn't have the best options in the bullpen with Jansen uh, kind of questionable. The Dodgers were tied for the best bullpen in the majors this year. They were tied with Oakland, which, of course, had its own bullpen problems uh, leading to yeah, its playoff we'll see loss. all the good that did them. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of options for Roberts to turn to in the ninth inning, and none of them are great. They all come with question marks. Uh, his first option, based on how the last couple postseasons have gone, is Joe Kelly. And the, the less said about Joe Kelly for Dodgers fans, probably the better, if they haven't turned off this podcast already. Uh, Bruce Star Gratterall has been pretty good in the playoffs so far, but he also benefited from Cody Bellinger robbing uh, Fernando Tatis home run. If that had gone over the fence, we might think about Gratterall differently. Gratterall also had the third lowest strikeout rate of any qualified reliever this year, which doesn't make sense when you look at his profile and how hard he throws the ball. Uh, He's electric. He has, uh, according to StatCast, he's in the 100th percentile of fastball velocity this year. But in whiff rate, he's in the first percentile. So he throws the ball really hard, but doesn't induce that many swings and misses. So no matter how effective like his ERA makes him look, I don't necessarily trust that profile against Ronald Acuna or Freddie Freeman, because as long as they make contact, the ball travels pretty far. Uh, so he's an option, but question mark. Dustin May has been good in the playoffs, but they might need him to start and provide length in game five without any of the off days. So... Maybe it's six to one, half dozen the other, and the Dodgers relievers are going to mess up anyway. But I also don't think he's putting them in the best position to succeed. So I agree with you, Zach, that Roberts is in a tough position because all of his pitchers, you can see why they would want to or why they would perform well in a situation like that. But they've also all of them have messed up in some some way, shape or form, whether it's all allowing the, the long fly ball to Tatis or, or trying and allowing the home run or Jake McGee uh, or Joe, like, man, imagine being a manager and having Joe Kelly as your your ninth inning option is with the, the World Series on the line. Like, that's a tough position for him to be in, but he's also made the wrong decision in scenarios like that before. I mean, let's not let's not forget how they lost the division series last year. Like, Kershaw gave up the home run, but it was absolutely ludicrous that Kershaw was in that position to begin with. And so I don't know, like I'm sort of torn between wanting to, to rip Roberts for putting the wrong pitcher in and wanting to cut him a little bit of slack because I don't really know who the right pitcher is in that situation. Yeah. I ripped Roberts or, or came as close as I had come to ripping any rip manager people. really Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> last year, the way that the Dodgers exited after what seemed to be some Roberts mismanagement. I thought there was a real chance that the Dodgers might move on from him because uh, at a certain point, like it's really valuable to keep getting your team to that point. But if you think that a manager does have that Achilles heel where he's going to manage you out of the playoffs every October. And to be clear, like, I don't think that's the reason why the Dodgers have not broken through and, and won a world series, but it hasn't helped seemingly. So it wouldn't have shocked me if the Dodgers had moved on, but that front office just seems totally to have faith in him or to believe that his strengths outweigh his weaknesses. I mean, when he's been criticized in past postseasons, they've given him an extension. And after all of the criticism he received from last uh, from people last October, including me, 
they brought him back with seemingly no qualms about that. So it's definitely a, a collaborative exercise there when it comes to decision making. And so maybe that means that whatever he does in games, as much as it might mystify us, is somehow a product of those conversations or he's following a front office recommendation, whatever the answer he hasn't been held responsible or, or hung out to dry for any of the perplexing moves that he's made. But I agree, at least on the surface, there are some strange ones. And all this said, if the Dodgers l- lose tonight, they lose tomorrow, they get swept, and they fire Roberts on Friday morning, if I were running the White Sox, I'd hire him on, on Saturday. Uh, like I, <laughs> I think he's a really good manager for a team that that expects to be in you know, in this situation every year, I mean, the Dodgers obviously have tons of talent, but getting everybody, getting everybody on a team that deep pulling in the same direction is not easy to do. And I think he's, he's a really good manager, even if some of the bullpen mistakes, you know, are, are jarring, but you know, the problem is not, is, is not, uh, well, I was going to say, it's not only bringing lefties pitch to Ozzy Albies. The problem is that they're not hitting. If they're, if, if they were scoring eight runs a game, we wouldn't be talking about this. Yeah. So Fangraphs right now, if you look at the playoff odds, has roughly 75% Atlanta wins. Exactly the question that I was gonna (laughs) ask. This I think this is a really interesting sorry, I'll I'll let you finish, but so I was going to ask. This is a good way to wrap this up. Yeah, the Fangraph odds say roughly 75% Atlanta wins, 25% the Dodgers come back and win this series. Would you take the over or under on those 25% comeback odds? I think if I know that Kershaw is able to start game four, I would take the over on those odds. I think the offensive question marks will probably be solved over the next few games as we get into the deeper, less reliable parts of Atlanta's rotation. And it is pretty easy for me to see a path back to 2-2 in the series, at which point it's, I guess, not even a toss-up at that point because the Dodgers are probably a better team. They've been a better team over the course of the season dating back to July. Yeah, I think I'd I'd probably take slightly the over on this just because I, I don't really have a lot of confidence in the Braves rotation from this point forward, or at least for the next couple of games, which I guess is probably baked into those odds, but just not quite as much as I would mentally pick it in. Yeah, I this this number is interesting to me because I mean, I guess it's credit to Dan Saborski, but like it looks about right. Like this looks about right for well, the better sure. team have, having a path, <laughs> having a path back. But Zach said we had to go over. Right. Under. So I'd go <laughs> under here. And uh-huh. so one thing about the we talked about the the Red Sox coming back from three nothing down in 2004. That's also the only time and it's the only time since 1996 that a, a team has come down from two nothing in a best of seven series. So, you know, I think the, the path back for the Dodgers is not, it's no longer as simple as they're the better team. They have more starter, more quality starters. They have at least as good an offense. They'll start hitting eventually. Like the time for eventually is now I mean, they're, they're out of rope. This is about as far as they can go about as far ahead as, as they can let the Braves get before those one in, you know, one in four odds turn into, what is in the Astros race series? It's like one in 
Oh God, I can't do this math in my head. One in like 28. So it's, you know, they're, they're at a rope at this point. And if Kyle Wright pitches well again tonight, then, then they're done and they're going to regret, you know, all they're going to regret the letting that game get away from the, in the ninth in game one, they're going to, uh, regret leaving Bellinger on, on third base in game two, even though I think that, you know, that scoreline, uh, probably makes that game look closer than it was, but yeah, you know, you could see the, you could see the path back, but, and as much as it's more interesting and, and the way we've covered the series has definitely been Dodger centric. I think it's doing a disservice to how good this Braves team is. So I, I do want to give them, them credit to like, they put themselves in this position. So, um, you know, I could see the the Dodgers path back, but I still think the you know, the Braves are are near overwhelming favorites just because they've been executing so far. Well, if Dave Roberts gets fired for losing this series, the White Sox can't hire him because Rick Hahn said he wants someone with recent championship experience. Oh boy. <laughs> Sorry, Dodgers fans. Speaking of someone else with no, no championship I'm just, experience, I'm, I'm, I trailed <laughs> off because, like, I want to go into that, and we don't have time, and we've got other stuff to, because, like, this is already a, a packed show outside of the the playoff discourse. So, one thing I wanted to touch before we get into uh, our the last segment of the day is this Billy Bean story. So, that's my speaking of somebody with no championship yeah, experience yeah, yeah, transition. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Stop! You did one good segue last week. Like, this is not. <laughs> Get off, like, get off my back. Let me do this segue. Okay. Speaking of someone with no recent championship experience, Billy Bean is uh, reportedly involved in a bid to take the Boston Red Sox public. He is part of a uh, a private equity organization called Red Ball that is considered that is partnering with Fenway Group, which. Uh, owns the NASCAR team, owns Red Sox, it owns Liverpool in the English Premier League, and uh, is they're considering taking Fenway Group public. Uh, this would mean, I think the, the most obvious baseball angle is that this would mean the termination of a more than 30-year partnership uh, between Billy Bean and the Oakland A's, in which he's serve just about every role in the organization and like that's worth unpacking in and of itself. So I guess we'll start there real quick and then sort of get into the, the broader implications. Ben, like where does Billy Bean rank in the most influential general managers in, in baseball history? I think like you look, even though, even with his lack of playoff success, like he's sort of in the tier below branch Ricky for me in terms of executives who front office executives who really changed the game. Yeah, I think so. Although you, I think, have to give Michael Lewis a lot of credit for changing the game via Billy Bean. But, you know, I, I don't think the A's were necessarily the first team to adopt sabermetrics or analytics. I mean, there were sabermetricians working in baseball in the 80s. There were teams that were reading Bill James and Baseball Prospectus and all of those places, I think, even before Bean. But Bean was sort of the the face of it. He became the figurehead and largely because of Moneyball. He was sort of the standard bearer and his impact has been enormous. I mean, would we be talking? Would we be having this conversation, the three of us right now, if not for Bean and Moneyball? I don't know that we end up doing this and a whole lot of other people who are working in baseball right now would not be if not for that book and that story about Bean. 
And without being at the center of that story, I don't know that it catches on as well, because, you know, if if it were some other GM who had been the the person that Michael Lewis chose, you know, is that as compelling as the the former top prospect who didn't pan out and then managed to apply these lessons to win with the the low payroll A's? So I don't know if Bean was the first. I, I wouldn't say he was the first. And I think probably other executives have maybe applied those lessons even more and, and are maybe even more influential in today's game. Like you only have to look around this championship series and see that every team is either run by or has had ties to Andrew Friedman. So his executive tree, I think, maybe has more branches than Beans at this point. And certainly Oakland has been lapped by other teams when it comes to the size of their R&D department. You know, I, I think... Obviously, they've continued to find ways to win year in and year out under Bean and under his lieutenants who've been with him for such a long time. But the A's are are no longer, I think, at the forefront of that movement. But they were doing it at the right time to really be the breakthrough. And I mean, Moneyball is not just influential in baseball or in the sports world, but obviously in the base in the business world and in the culture at large. And clearly, Bean has had aspirations to go beyond baseball. And it looks like he's about to do that. And uh, it seemed from the Wall Street Journal report that if Bean does indeed leave baseball, he'd kind of turn his attention more to the soccer world where he has long held interest. Uh, The Fenway ownership group also owns Liverpool, which is probably at least of the top tier European soccer teams, the most uh, welcoming of analytics. And that is one of the big reasons they've turned into the most successful team in Europe over the last few seasons. Uh, So I think it kind of, that connection makes sense. And if there's going to be kind of this empire in the soccer world built, it would make sense that Bean would want to be in charge of that. Uh, And so it makes sense from his perspective. It's just a really interesting baseball specific story because Bean has almost transcended the sport at this point, which is weird to say, but like, the A's would survive without him for as long as he's been synonymous with their organization. They've had basically the same few people in charge uh, for many years. David Forst is the GM in name now since Bean was promoted to whatever lofty executive vice president title he holds now. So the A's would be just fine. Bean more, I think, symbolizes an era for the sport rather than one particular team. Yeah, the last thing that as much as I want to do a 45 minute show just about this story. Cause I think the, the implications beyond beans legacy, just in terms of what this means for, for baseball, for the Red Sox are, are really important. Um, I don't view this as a positive development because this is another intrusion. Like it just further strips away the veneer of the Red Sox, which are a civic institution, which operate in an industry that is protected, uh, by uh, the federal antitrust exemption. This is something that that is important to our society, and it's just being turned into an investment vehicle. And I think that it's instructive that as much as the Wall Street types are coming in and running baseball teams now, Billy Bean is going in the other direction. That uh, you know, this is this is private equity, you know, taking taking this team public. They're selling shares, you know, generating short term cash and and turning part of the the team over essentially to to people who are going to want to see dividends. And so, you know, I just look at the intersection of private equity and these civic institutions, whether that's, you know, important 
uh, important retail concerns or, or, uh, or newspapers or other media concerns or sports teams, that intersection has always been good for private equity and it's always been bad for the institution, the consumer and the civilization, not to put too fine a point on it. Like everything that, that, uh, you know, the, the CNBC hot take article says millennials are killing is actually being killed by Bobby Axelrod, you know, doing the sailors takeover. And so this is, uh, Bobby Axelrod actually just bought the Mets. So, yeah, yeah I mean, and, and this, like we could talk about the, the Steve Cohen buying the Mets thing too. Cause Every time ownership changes, I think there's a natural optimism in the baseball world to say, oh, this person's going to spend. And like, I don't know who the last new owner to come in and and start operating like the Yankees was like every it seems like every every new private equity baron we we bring in. It might have actually been John Henry, but like every private equity baron we bring into this uh, into this culture seems to just take money out. And so I think, you know, it's bad for for the game on every level. So I'm, you know, interested in the send off, send off to Billy Bean. If this does happen, obviously that's an end, the end of an era worth examining um, and worth discussing. Cause you know, it's a hugely important figure in, in contemporary baseball history. And that's interesting, but I'm also apprehensive about what this means for, for the Red Sox and for the sport going forward. And the surprise, I suppose, is that it took this long for Bean to move on, if he does, because he's obviously had opportunities to do that, whether in baseball, going back to the first time John Henry tried to hire him, or in the business world, or in other areas of the sports world. I mean, this is someone who I think his name was made in larger circles by that book, and you know, he's been doing high-priced speaking engagements to CEO conferences for years, so... I think he could have done this earlier and among people who cover him, it it seems like he's had the aspiration to do this. So what has held him this long? You know, is it the fact that he has had a relationship with the A's going back to the 80s as a player? Is it the fact that they're the ones who gave him the chance to break out in this role? Is it that he wanted to remove this lone stain from his record that they haven't won a World Series and he's just finally gotten sick of trying? And, you know, the idea of rolling the stone back up the hill and and rebuilding the A's for the umpteenth time has finally just gotten too tiresome for him. It's hard to say. Like, I think he's pulled back a bit from the day-to-day operations of the team compared to the role that he used to have. But why he decided to move on, you know, is it just that there was this particular business opportunity now? Is it the fact that A's ownership pushed him too far with the way they treated their minor leaguers this season, which he seems to have been quite displeased by? I don't know what it is that's or finally getting him be, to. I mean, he's what, 58 years old? He's been right, doing yeah. this for 30 years. Like, it's know, entirely possible. Change. Yeah, yeah, he just wants to do something different. Like, I think that mm-hmm. if, if anything, like, people don't do that enough, people in, right. in his yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's end on a, uh, I think a, a more somber note. Again, uh, you know, we talked about Bob Gibson last week. And we talked about Tom Seaver and Lou Brock a couple weeks before that. We've had two Hall of Famers uh, die since we we talked last. So you know, I think both of these, and it's not just like uh, Hall of Famers; it's people with huge legacies in baseball. I think deserve uh, a little bit of reflection. So I let's start with Whitey Ford, uh, legendary Yankees pitcher, Hall of Famer. Uh, who who died this week? Uh, you know, he's he's somebody with a, a huge legacy. 
for his own accomplishments, for his relationship with with Mickey Mantle on those teams, for what he did in the postseason, like uh, a, you know, I keep saying huge impact on the game, but that's that's really you know I can't think of a better way to put it. I think two things stand out to me about Whitey Ford, who's probably the best pitcher in Yankees history, certainly the best starting pitcher. I guess he versus Mariano Rivera is the only comparison. Whitey Ford holds basically every World Series pitching record in part because the Yankees in the 50s and 60s made the World Series so often, but also because Ford was so good there. He threw 33 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings uh, in the World Series, which broke Babe Ruth's record. And I think the other thing that is so interesting about Whitey Ford is the way he was used in uh, particular under Casey Stengel, who was the manager for the first half of his career. Ford, his career numbers don't stand out at you like some other legendary pitchers. In part, that's because he missed time due to injury. In part, that's because he missed two years in his early 20s for military service. But also, he rarely pitched more than 30 games a year under Stengel, which is unusual even now for a top starter, let alone back in the 50s when rotations were three and four men deep. But that's because Stengel basically didn't want to waste Whitey Ford's arm against the worst teams in the league. So that was back when like the athletics were terrible every season. So if Ford's spot in the rotation came during a series against the athletics, he would just skip him and throw somebody else. So Ford missed a lot of opportunity to amass not only counting stats, but to improve his rate stats against the dregs of the American League. Uh, and I think after Stengel left, uh, he began pitching more often. He won a Cy Young in 1961, and his numbers are still incredible throughout his career, a 2.75 ERA. He has the best winning percentage of all time among pitchers with a certain number of decisions. So uh, a no-doubt Hall of Famer no matter what, but it's kind of amazing to me to look at these numbers, uh, which are phenomenal in and of themselves, and think, wow, they could have been so much better if not for these contextual circumstances. Yeah, and I mean, less than 3,200 innings for a starting pitcher from that era is really incredible. Like, that's an incredibly small number for a Hall of Famer. Um, Stephen Goldman wrote uh, an interesting obituary, I think, that's worth reading it at BP, where he says that, you know, Stengel's, essentially a very modern usage pattern uh, for what he, what he Ford may have preserved his career that maybe he might've gotten hurt. You know, we saw him put up big, and this is what Steven wrote that like he put up big innings totals under Ralph Houck in the early sixties. And then his arm gave out. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, I, I think Stengel is as much as he is like a, a legendary, uh, manager, he sort of gets underrated as a, as a tactical innovator. I think that maybe sometimes we think of him as just the guy who, the Joe Torrey for, for Whitey Ford and Mickey Mantle. But, you know, doing stuff like this, he, he had a, a huge impact on certainly Ford's career. And I think, you know, the Yankees were better off for it. And Morgan, I, I think, has about twice the career war of Whitey Ford, which just goes to show you how great he was because we've been singing Ford's praises. And yeah. Morgan is uh, just, you know, kind of in a, an even higher, even more exclusive tier as a player. And his career, I mean, he's probably the the best second baseman of all time. He played for 22 years in the majors, you know, came up as a teen, played into his 40s and was still productive then, was a, a great player with the Astros as a youth and then really leveled up in his late 20s and 30s with the Reds and the Big Red Machine and won 
back-to-back MVP awards in his 30s and, you know, the the two World Series wins and all the gold gloves and all the other accolades, you know, just uh, an incredible all-around player as a, a small guy, you know, not quite Altuve-sized, but someone who is definitely discounted because of his build and proved everyone wrong and is one of the, the great on-base guys in baseball history. And, of course, that is somewhat ironic given what we know him for after his career. And, you know, I, I made this point, I think, when we were talking about Bob Gibson. And, and boy, we boy we sure have been doing these little remembrances much too often at the end of these episodes lately between Al Kaline and, and Brock and Seaver and Gibson and, and now Morgan and Ford. I, I think I saw somewhere that this is the most Hall of Famers who have died in one year since the early 70s. And these aren't, you know, borderline guys either. These are like no doubt first ballot players that we're talking about. But I, I mentioned when we were talking about Gibson that all of these players have been so visible and have hung around the game for decades after they played. And Ford was a, a coach for the Yankees and a broadcaster, and he would show up at every old timers game and all-star games. And Morgan, I mean, no one was really more visible in retirement than Morgan as uh, someone who was on the board at the Hall of Fame and would be outspoken about issues in the game. But of course, as a broadcaster, both as a, a local broadcaster and as part of the iconic pairing of Morgan and John Miller on Sunday Night Baseball for decades. And I think we all grew up watching that and, and listening to those guys. And I have a lot of nostalgia and fondness for that. You know, I, I think I enjoyed Morgan as a broadcaster, not everything he said <laughs> clearly. And I think he was inadvertently influential in a way, you know, almost in the way that Billy Bean was in getting a, a generation of people to embrace sabermetrics. You know, if not for Fire Joe Morgan, I don't know that I would be doing what I do now. And I know Mike Schur, who co-authored that blog, has said that he regrets calling it Fire Joe Morgan and, and singling out one particular person. And we all remember the the Joe chats at ESPN and the things he said about Moneyball and being and about on base percentage. But I found him to be a, a pretty entertaining broadcaster in a lot of ways, you know, sort of like Harold Reynolds, I think, who I enjoy his work. Like, I, I think he's just a good TV personality. And yeah, if you parse some of the statements that he makes and, you know, listen to them or, or read them in print, you really scratch your head and, and wonder what he's thinking. But I kind of enjoyed just the the presence in the broadcast booth. And, and Morgan was really good at, at, I think, talking about the finer points of the game and breaking down mechanics and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, he's not alone in being a former player who did not excel necessarily at player evaluation or maybe didn't even recognize what made him so great when he saw it in other players. I mean, to, you know, badmouth OBP when you have a, a near 400 career OBP yourself was always pretty perplexing. But, you know, that's ultimately, I think, a, a pretty small part of his legacy, which is just an all-time great player and teammate on some of the best baseball teams of all time. Yeah, Joe Morgan's one of the the old-timey players who I've always felt really attached to. I remember when I was first getting into baseball, like, as a, a six- or seven-year-old, like, you know, watching the Ken Burns documentary and and starting to read books. And so, you know, I remember the more I learned, I knew enough at that time to know about the big red machine. And I, I knew about Pete Rose and Johnny bench. And I remember my parents got me the AB or APBA baseball computer game, which was like not even any animation, just like numbers on a, on a screen essentially. And I was playing as the, the 76 reds. 
I saw Joe Morgan's stat line. I was like, oh my God. Like this is like this is the the best player on maybe the best team in baseball history. And a team that included um, you know, included uh was it three or four other Hall of Famers, Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Tom Seaver in the later 70s. And he was clearly the best player on that team. And so like that was the the space that he took up in in my mind um as you know, as I was learning about baseball and then later you find out like he had the second career as a, as an impact player and, in, in, you know, made the playoffs again in Houston and Philadelphia. And then you go back and look like by the time he joined the Reds, he'd already had the first half of a, of a hall of fame career with the Astros and just every stern you, or every stone you, you uncover with Morgan's career is another, um, it's, like another just absolutely astonishing statistical achievement. And like in terms of like even Joe Morgan is as like the caricature of the old cranky broadcaster. Um, one thing I appreciated about him versus some of the the guys who fill that role now is it came from a place of, of caring deeply about the game and how it's played. And that's something I respect, even if uh, even if the conclusions he, he came to weren't necessarily the same as as what mine were definitely at the time and even now. Yes, uh, in the integration era, uh, 25% more career war than any other second baseman. And I know we can't just reduce the players. Like you said, Mike, he contributed in so many different ways. So go check out his baseball reference page if you're not familiar with it and look at all that black ink. But I think that one stat just encapsulates how absurdly dominant he was both uh, at his peak and over the course of his whole career, second basemen don't tend to age that well uh, in their late 30s. But Joe Morgan was incredible for two consecutive decades. Yeah, I mean, as much as we don't want to reduce him to the numbers, the numbers are just astonishing. Um, I mean, it's the best second baseman of all time, I think. And like, you have to really want to make an argument for somebody like Eddie Collins. If you go back that far and not, you know, I I think that one number really illustrates how tough it is to, to find somebody who really came close. So yeah, Joe Morgan and Whitey Ford were two absolute, absolute Titans of the, the game and, uh, we'll surely miss them. All right. Well, that will do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thank you, Zach. Until next time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Ozzy Albies, Dave Roberts, and Alex Bregman for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy what's left of the League Championship Series, and we'll see you next time.